Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may, in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now, if I recall, we need to pick back up at Romans twelve seventeen. Does that sound about right? Last week, we looked at this new section, new to us, section of Paul's letter to Rome, the Rome, wow, I'm struggling today, team, Whew, to the church in Rome. And we've been talking about this a few things, the idea of rational worship. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational worship. And we talked about how this idea of rational, logikos, doesn't have to do with just the mind, but sort of the whole um, undergirding principle of who you are. So everything in life, everything in the body, everything we bring the mind to can be an act of worship. And so, we then go on to Paul's, this section of the letter, he's really talking about, if this is what, I've spent all this time explaining to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, and if what we say about him is true, how should we live? Will we live by presenting ourselves for rational worship? And we do it in community with one another. The call of the Christian is to live with one another in this overlap of the ages as though we're already under the dominion of grace. We live as though already resurrected, even though we know that the powers of this age are strong to the very end. And so one thing he talks about is to be humble in our assessment of our own gifts. Now, Bill brought up a great point to me at the end of last um, class, which actually needs some clarification, because Paul's whole, whole thesis in this section, Romans 12, 3 to 8, is that the gifts we have are to be given to the community. They are not just for us, but for the building up of the body of Christ. And so, it can be hard to evaluate ourselves. What sort of gifts am I bringing? What can I offer? This varies a lot, culture to culture and place to place. In some cultures and places and times and personalities, you're much more likely to think you have a lot of gifts (laughs) and keep offering them maybe or just like feel really proud about yourself when maybe those are not your gifts. And then a lot of times, and one thing I think I see more often these days 
is people who assume they have nothing to give. I didn't go to seminary, so I can't lead a Bible study. I've never been a trained singer, so I can't participate in music ministry. Um, or whatever it is. I don't know anything. I, don't do, I can't do anything. So what Paul says is that we are not the best judges of our own gifts. We tend to misevaluate ourselves all the time. And so he says, look to the community to which you are sharing your gifts. If people are increasing in their faith, when you speak to them, you may be speaking prophetically. If they are learning, you may be teaching. And so it's not from trying to look inward, but to look outward to see what we bring. Now, the point Bill brought up that was very good, which is, is that a lot of times we find ourselves in places and with people who are not receptive to our gifts. People will very often reflect back to you things about yourself that are not true. (laughs) And this is key because what Paul is assuming is a healthy, thriving Christian culture where everyone is looking out for the best interests of everyone else. So if in your, you know, in your workplace, you um, have this boss who no matter what you do, I've actually had this boss, not here, it's not Clint, I promise. Um, No matter what you do, it's never right, it's never good enough, and they're like kind of mean and snide. That person is not the person to help you evaluate your gifts. (laughs) The person to go to is the one who sees you and wants you to thrive. Not because they'll puff you up, but because giving honest feedback to each other is one of the best ways we love each other. Coming to your community and saying, I have nothing to offer, and hearing someone say, well, that's not true. These are things I see in you. That's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about getting your impression of yourself from only what other people say. Because where is our true identity rooted? Not in ourselves, but in Christ. Insofar as we have been buried with him and raised. And so, other people's assessment of our gifts are a tool for us to use in discernment with the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember how important this idea of discernment is, both for assessing and determining which gifts we have to offer to the community, but also how do you live according to the gospel? The Bible is chock full of information and is not a rule book for making ethical decisions on a day-to-day basis. And so it requires discernment. If you're having a problem with your next-door neighbor, the Bible is not going to tell you what exactly it is you should do. It will paint for you a picture of God's world, of the world he wants to invite us into, and it's our job to say, hopefully within the body of the church, 
okay, if that is true, how do I respond to this person? How do I live like that now? And so we looked at, in Romans 12, verses 9 to 16, this idea of love in action. Remember, it keeps, it keeps sounding like I'm saying inaction. If you're listening to this recording later, that's I-N space A-C-T-I-O-N, not inaction. <laughs> love in action. <laughs> um, oh, grammar joke. Um, He says, Paul says, to let love be genuine. Well, what does genuine love look like? It's the love, genuine love is the love that doesn't just dwell in our hearts, like having a warm feeling about someone. It's the love that takes the next step, that is put into action in the body, which we are presenting to God as a living sacrifice. See how these things are all connected? It's what we do with our members, with our bodies, how we love in action the people in our community. And then Paul ups the ante again. He talks about how genuine love in the community looks. Love one another with brotherly affection. Work together as a family. And then he says, give to the saints. Give your money to struggling churches. Support those who are not in your little community, but in your broader Christian community. So we've zoomed out. That's what love in action looks like to the broader community. Show hospitality to strangers to people from whom you have nothing to gain. Love them in action by showing them hospitality. And then he says, bless those who persecute you. Well, now we've zoomed out farther still. Do you see how radical the call to Christian love is? Love those who are here with you. Love those who are connected to you through the body of Christ. Love those who are strangers, who are not yet part of the body. Love even those who persecute you. And it's important to remember here, I think there's again a note of humility here. If we're remembering Romans 5, For the love of God is proved in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If this is what he did when we were enemies of God, how much more now that we've been redeemed? Your enemy, the one who persecutes you, may end up becoming your brother in Christ. This is the the great story of Paul himself who persecuted the church and then became their brother. And so we bless those who persecute us because that's how deep Christian love goes. 
We love everyone like a brother. We pray for our enemies because God might actually win their hearts too. God might actually be strong enough and powerful enough and loving enough to turn their hearts to him. And we would have to let go of being their enemies, so start loving them now. And so then he says, whew, here we go. In verse uh, 12, 16, oh no, we did that, to live in harmony with all. Which does not mean thinking alike, but as best as you are able to come together with a common mind, in your community, be pointed in the right direction. That is to say, be pointed toward Jesus Christ. The common mind is not like we all think the same and vote the same like little automatons. It's that we all put on the mind of Christ and seek our brothers and sisters as members of the body of Christ, not in competition with us. And so this brings us to Romans twelve seventeen, which I think is where we need to pick up. Does that sound right? Okay, great. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is sometimes an interesting or a confusing passage because we have this, like, love, bless those who persecute you because God will punish them which I don't think is exactly what's going on here. In verse 17 and 18, Paul, this um, repay no one evil for evil, this is sort of the Pauline formulation of Matthew 5, 38 to 42. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, right? Remember, Paul doesn't have the Gospels. Paul is written well before the Gospel of Matthew, Um, So this may be a saying of Jesus that's well known, but what we see is that very early on from the 50s, this is a core teaching of the church. And I think I mentioned last week that this is something now, especially in a pagan culture, definitely. In a pagan culture, hate your enemies. Athenians hate Spartans. And you hate your enemies, glory to Sparta, right? Like that's what you want. And what makes Christianity revolutionary is that Jesus commands us to love our enemies. He's the one from the cross who says, Father, forgive them. (laughs) This is a new thing. And I think what's going on here... This phrase is interesting, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. In the sight of all, the grammar in that sentence is kind of confusing. What Paul is doing here is explaining that 
it's okay. I'm playing hurt today, guys. I'm doing the best I can. It's not what is noble in the sight of all. Like, as in everyone agrees that this is noble. No one's ever going to agree on that. What that sentence is saying, I believe, is take thought for what is noble and you are doing it in the sight of all. I.e., and we're going to see this when we get to Romans 13, your life as a Christian is played out on this stage. Take thought for what is noble. This relates to rational worship again. How are you holding yourself? How are you carrying yourself? Are you living as though you are in the sight of all? Not to earn their praise, not again because our worth is determined by other people, But remember back to Romans 2, a lot of the criticism Paul had was, you say you're a teacher of the law, and yet you steal from temples, and yet you are engaged in deceitfulness. So, does what you preach match how you behave? Are you preaching on Sunday and then living in the sight of all? in a way that matches, or do you have a, a double life? <laughs> and then I love this, and I think this is so key. I say this to myself regularly. If possible, this is verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is so key, because I sometimes think We have this idea that if we are being good Christians, if we are putting on the mind of Christ, we will be able to get along with everybody. I one time, this is like a little bit of a personal story, but I think it'll illustrate. I had this boyfriend before I was dating Joshua who was completely unchurched. Didn't go to church, didn't like church, thought church was stupid, didn't know why anybody would go to church. This obviously was not going to work for me. Probably should have figured it out a little sooner, but I didn't. And one of the reasons I did it was I had this idea that if I loved Jesus enough, he would love Jesus too. So my identity was really caught up in my ability to live peaceably with someone else. That if I am doing all the right things, he will get it too. And if he doesn't get it, it's because I'm doing something wrong. And so I think this is actually a wise pastoral note from our pastor Paul, insofar as it depends on you. There are some We cannot coerce other people into living peaceably with us or into sharing our faith. All we can do is love them and see if they will love us in response. But it doesn't just depend on you. So there may be people in your life Frequently, these people are family members (laughs) 
who you try and try and try with, and still there is like a tension and a friction. Yeah, friction, that's the right word. Now, sometimes we are not trying as hard as we think we are. Sometimes we are like we'd rather have the fight than let go. And yet, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But we're just not going to be able to live peaceably with everyone or get everyone to live in this community that Paul is envisioning because it's not on us. Each person still has a relationship with God that we can point towards but can't drop them into. You see what I mean? And so I think this is key to to Bill's point earlier about assessing our gifts within the community. If you're not in a healthy community, insofar as it depends on you, you can be doing everything right and you're not going to get Like, you can be a great teacher, and if people are not willing to hear, they will not learn. Insofar as it depends on you. Again, it's a statement of humility. This whole passage has been about looking at ourselves clearly and soberly and with the fellowship of our brothers and sisters so that we don't think either too highly or too lowly of ourselves. And so the same thing, insofar as it depends on you, don't think that we can all go and like get everybody on our right page. (laughs) There actually is a limit. Do all you can, but it is not a measure of your worth to fix other people. Sometimes we can give people all the love we have to give, and they are still not going to live peaceably with us. And that's just a hard thing about being human. I just trust that in the end, those relationships will be restored too. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I suspect here that Paul is being um, hyperbolic. The church has never interpreted, well, the church as a whole. Individual Christians have interpreted it this way, but the church as a whole has never interpreted this to mean, do not seek revenge because the punishment they get in the end is going to be worse than anything you could do to them. Because remember, the wrath of God is God's unending and unrelenting opposition to sin. It's a reminder that true and total justice can only ever be God's. And so we seek justice in this world. Like, we should definitely try criminals and hold them accountable for their behavior. 
Society falls apart if you don't. But we should also remember, this is like a societal humility note, that any justice we mete out is always going to be a shadow of the justice that God can mete out that will restore that which we have lost. Holding someone responsible, okay, if someone, like, smashes your, well, okay, the best example is the grimmest one. If someone murders a family member of yours, someone you love, even if they are caught and convicted and executed or given life in prison, only God can restore the person you have lost. Justice is not that person getting punished. It's giving back the thing that was taken from you. And that is something that only God can do. And so God's wrath that will be poured out is his wrath against sin, where he will obliterate. Remember when Paul says, like, the condemnation has fallen on sin. So again, don't think that you have failed if you look around and your society is still unjust. We can be doing all we can, and yet only God can fully restore us to what he meant us to be. Only God can fully give us back what we lost, what we lack. And the other important note here is seeking vengeance, revenge. Anyone who's ever, like, done this knows that it only lasts, it only feels good for a little while. Trying to give someone what they deserve. Trying to settle the score. Does not produce a lasting satisfaction. The only lasting satisfaction will come in the end, when everything is in God's hands. And I think we're also going to see something as we Get down to verse 21. Seeking vengeance, seeking revenge, different than justice, also does something to us. Let's read on. We're in verse 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The first part of that quotation, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, is from Proverbs 25. And if the proverb ended with give him something to drink, it would save interpreters a lot of trouble. Because the second phrase, heap burning coals, you will heap burning coals on his head. It is obscure in Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 21. And it is obscure in Paul. Interpreters are not quite clear on what is going on here. There's two thoughts. 
The first is that the kindness of one you were, the kind of, the kindness of the one who is being persecuted will make the eternal, like, eschatological final punishment worse because it's sort of a tally system, right? It's like, well, you were mean to this person and they were nice to you. So it's like where you may have been here, now you're here. <laughs> and so the, the eternal punishment, the vengeance of the Lord um, will be greater. You will heap burning coals on his head when he is finally punished for what he's doing. That doesn't really fit with what Paul is doing elsewhere in this passage. The interpretation I like, and this is not in Scripture, because so this is one of those places where Paul just says something and like assumes we know what he means and doesn't give us any explanation. My favorite one of that is when he says, women should cover their hair because of the angels. What? Could I get more information on the angels, please? <laughs> like, what does that mean? Every now and then Paul does this, where he just makes a statement. We assume it made sense to the original audience, and we are all just sort of trying to discern what is the message here for us with no explanation. So the interpretation that I like is that the burning coals that we heap on our enemies through our kindness are the sort of kindling that could, insofar as it depends on you, inspire conversion. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and at some point they just refuse to argue back to you? Or you're holding a grudge against someone and it becomes clear they're not holding a grudge against you. (laughs) This is your problem. We can keep going back and forth with each other for a long time as long as both people are willing to fight. But sometimes, and this is why in many contexts, nonviolent resistance is so effective. If you refuse to punch back, it can be a moment of awareness. It doesn't happen all the time. Like, I'm pretty sure if the Ukrainian army laid down their weapons and did non-passive, like, non-violent resistance, that, like, Ukraine is now Russia, right? It doesn't work in every context. Paul is not saying that we should not seek justice or should not stand up for ourselves. But that I think especially within the community, we sometimes hold on to things. We think that what we need to do is win the argument, when maybe what we need to do is just let go. As my priest, Father Brian Rebholtz, once told me, sometimes even when you win, you lose. There are certain arguments that even if you win, you lose. But what if we could inspire that fire of conversion in our relationships? By showing kindness to someone who isn't showing kindness to us. It's not going to work every time, insofar as it depends on you. But it might work this time. It might work with that person. That's the interpretation I like. In the end, we don't know for sure what Paul is saying here. 
But that is the interpretation to me that seems to fit with his vision of community. And I think it flows nicely into what he says in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, this is not black and white. It is not to say that if there is an evil force, if there is someone murderous and vicious, we can always defeat it by being better, by being kinder, by being nicer. But what we can do is not be overcome by evil itself. Because sometimes, and this is where I think the warning about not seeking vengeance of our own really takes root, sometimes the person you end up hurting is yourself. When you're trying to fight back against somebody else. Sometimes even when you win, you lose. And so the real test is if in a world that's frequently hostile, and remember, these Christians are, are living in a world where they are the persecuted minority. Can they be persecuted and still show compassion? Can you live in a violent world and not become violent yourself? That is overcoming evil because it hasn't taken root in you. That is how we allow agape to triumph over evil. That was a long catch-up. We are now moving on fast and furious to Romans 13. Romans 13, 1-7 is the strangest and probably single most controversial part of Paul's letter to the Romans from a historical, biblical interpretation perspective. Did anyone read Romans 13, 1 to 7 and think, that sounds odd? (laughs) Even the flow of it sounds weird. We go from this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's like very cut and dry all of a sudden. It in some ways, doesn't sound like the rest of the letter. There's nothing about Jesus Christ at all in Romans 13, 1 to 7. There's nothing about the end of this age and the dawn of the new creation. And if you removed it, we would flow really smoothly from Romans 12, 21 to owe no one anything, this kind of community-to-community thing. So some scholars have posited that this is not Paul. This is not something Paul wrote. It's something that was written later, and in order to give it credibility, it was plonked into the letter to the Romans. The problem with that is that it's still in the Bible. (laughs) So Christians, and especially in our tradition, we do not pick and choose what is Scripture based on who wrote it. And like we could ever know anyway. Like no one was there. (laughs) 
<laughs> so when people say like, well, you know, that's not, this happened to me all the time in seminary. People would be like, well, you know, that probably isn't authentic Paul. Or the letter to the Ephesians, that's probably not authentic Paul. And I would say like, so finish the sentence. So it's not Holy Scripture. So it's not in the Bible. Like, where are you going with this? I actually do think Paul wrote this. But I also think it doesn't matter because the way we read Scripture is as a whole and as a, a book or a collection of books that is handed down to us in the wisdom of the church. So if you could go back in history, if you had a time machine, and one, why would you use it for this? Like, just go meet Jesus if you have a time machine. But if you had a time machine and could go back in history and prove that Paul did not write Romans 13, 1 to 7, what have you proven? Because in the early church, in the first less than 100 years after Jesus died, the community said, this is worth treasuring. That's how we came with all the letters that end up in Holy Scripture. Like, there were other people writing letters besides just Paul and Peter and John. So why these letters? Because it's not just the writing that is guided by the Holy Spirit. It's also the stewarding and the interpretation within the context of the church. That's just my little soapbox about, like, all of Scripture is Scripture. We don't get to take any easy shortcuts out of it. I do think Paul wrote Romans 13, 1 to 7. But even if he didn't, I trust the Holy Spirit's guidance in the book I have inherited. So, the exact DNA of the author matters less than the fact that Christ's church, Christ's people, from the earliest of days said, like, yes, there is something here for you. So let's look at what's here for us. Oh, another note, important note on the context. Okay, let's read it first, then I'll do the note on the context. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for is there, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval. For, if, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We'll stop there. So a note on the context. Remember... That in the 50 ADs, 50s AD, in Rome, the time that this letter was written, there was a lot of internal strife 
um, within the Roman government, specifically around the collection of taxes. We have documents on this. In 58, there was um, concern that tax collectors, and we actually see this in the Gospels, tax collectors are not being fair. They're taking more than what is asked of them. In 58 AD, Emperor Nero considered abolishing indirect tax collection, but he was talked out of it. So I think it's possible, given that context, that this fledgling Christian community to which Paul is writing is divided on this issue. Should we pay taxes or not? Should we trust the Roman government? Should we trust Nero's magistrates or not? Does our allegiance to Jesus Christ mean that we do not have to play by these same rules? We don't have to pay taxes. We're in a kingdom not of this world. I think that is what Paul is addressing. And the other thing to remember is that Romans is Paul's, in some sense, Paul's self-defense, his self-apology of his own gospel. Remember, Paul didn't found the Roman church. He's sending this letter ahead of himself so that they know who he is in his own words before he gets there. Because this is pretty late in Paul's ministry. So word about him has spread. Now keep in mind, he's just spent 12 chapters telling us to join the cosmic revolution. (laughs) Because we are of a, a new age, a new kingdom, be a new creation. And so it's possible, too, that Paul needs to make it clear that he is not going to stir up trouble when he comes to visit them. This is a persecuted church that is probably known for already being a little odd. Is this apostle going to show up and tell us to start a revolt? He needs to get out ahead of that narrative. Those are two possibilities that are coming through for this. But note, more importantly, like the instructions on how to live in community, these instructions presuppose a just and healthy government. They are assuming a government where justice is being meted out, where people aren't extorting somebody, um, where there isn't a bunch of corruption, How do you know? Because he says the magistrate is acting justly. And Paul is pretty clear that elsewhere, governments are not just. So he's not saying that any government that exists is automatically doing God's will. But that if you are in a just government, you do not get to think yourself higher than that which has been instituted over you. Humility again. All right, let's go verse by verse. In verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So this is interesting, and this you can talk about in your small groups. Paul does not say to be obedient to governing authorities, but to be subject to them. There is a Greek word for obedience. Paul doesn't use it. What is the difference between being subject and being obedient? 
or a command to be subject and a command to be obedient. It's a more nuanced understanding of our relationship with the government or with the law, I guess, the authorities. In Paul's context, this is likely local authorities who would have, remember, there's no internet and there's no direct democracy. So the authorities that a church would meet on a daily basis would be people like a sheriff and tax collectors. We think about the president all the time. Everyday Romans didn't really think about the emperor that much. (laughs) He's like off doing his own thing. Now, if he sends an army in, then you start to think about him. But they have much more distance from their rulers than we have. So this is likely about our responsibilities to local authorities. So then he says, for there is no authority... That is not put in, what does he say, for there, do, do, do. there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is a pretty common thought in the ancient world. We see it a lot in ancient Jewish literature, especially the writings of Josephus, that rulers are instituted by God and have a sort of divine authority. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we live in a democracy, So our rulers are picked by us. (laughs) And we know ourselves and we know our neighbors. So we're like, how good a job are we really doing at this? But if you live under a king, it's just so fascinating to think about other forms of government. If you live under an absolute monarchy, which we almost doesn't exist in the world anymore, there is just so much more left up to chance. The king has a son And that is your new king. Maybe he's good at his job. Maybe he's not. But it's up to fate and providence. (laughs) And so when you have a king, you can see how much more easily people can say it is put in place by God. Because it's this sort of, you know, it's just the way it is. It sort of flows and we take it as we come. And we have sort of let go of some of this, but throughout the Bible, there's a lot of God directing things that we would call happening by chance. So remember when Saul is made king over Israel, how do they do it? They cast lots. Because God will turn the lots the right way to pick the proper king. I'm not saying we should believe that. But it's in the Bible. So this is a common thought in the ancient world, and I think, again, is a lesson in humility. What can we control and what can't we control? Do we trust, not necessarily that this king is a good king because he's king, but do we trust that God is working through the world in a real way? That God's authority is not broken because of one bad king, but that God's will will be worked out through us. That, I think, is how we can sort of apply this passage to our own context when, again, we live in a democracy, so it's kind of, well, sort of a democracy, so it's kind of hard to 
for us to wrap our heads around. It's kind of hard for it to apply to us. So, then notice in verses 2 to 4, we don't need to unpack these. I think the vagueness here is intentional. Is the justice being meted out, if you do what is good and receive approval, are you receiving approval from God or from a person? It's very vague. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, this is verse 4, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. I think what this does for us is we like to spend a lot of time saying, well, this was a human action and this was divine action. That was divine intervention, that was providence, and this was chance. What Paul does here, in a way that sounds very harsh on our modern ears, is to remind us that God can be working through human action. Now, obviously, not every government, not every official is living out God's will. (laughs) Remember, Paul is assuming a just government. He's assuming someone who is um, seeking the best ends, seeking the good of his people, who is only, who is actually upholding justice, who is not corrupt. But can God's will work be seen for us? Can the power of God be shown for us even in the people around us? Should we have the humility to think that God is working through even our structures, our societies, our neighbors. And so then note here, this is where we start to sound a little more Pauline for real. In verse 5, therefore one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Here we're back again to what we've been talking about before, this sort of transformation of life that is possible now that the reign of sin and death has been broken. And there's also a hint back at all of Paul's critique about works of the law. Are you doing what you should do? Because you're afraid of the consequences or because of conscience. Now for Paul, and in the ancient world, and in scripture, conscience is not like just sort of a bad feeling. It's not like feeling guilty about something. It has to do with a sort of um, discernment, with evaluating a scenario and making choices based on who God is calling you to be. So don't just live according to the light because you're afraid of what's going to happen if you don't, but because you're actually being called to something greater. To live according to conscience is to live out of the deep part of yourself, 
not because you're scared of punishment. If you've raised kids, like sometimes punishment is the only thing that works, but if you can make them think that something was their idea, (laughs) they're much more likely to do it than if they've been coerced into it. I don't have kids, but this has been my experience when I've seen other parents do it. This is my experience of how my mom raised me, honestly. <laughs> if you can, if it can be motivated from the inside, from that, um, that down payment of the Holy Spirit that allows us to live according to the gospel even in this present age without being conformed to this age, then we're no longer living out of fear of an outside authority, but from a centered place of knowing who we are in Christ. And so then in verses 6 and 7, we're going to just barely finish this, we get to what this passage, I think, has actually been about. This is for the same reason you also pay taxes. This is so explicit that I'm convinced that given the historical context about Nero's tax collectors and this explicit statement, I think the debate that has been going on in the church in Rome, and I could be wrong, I wasn't there, has been around, are Christians required to pay taxes? And so this is what Paul is speaking to. And he says, yes, you pay, in verse 7, all of them their due, taxes to whom they're due, revenue to whom it's due, and then this is key, respect to whom it is due, honor to whom it is due. The word in our text, in my text that is translated respect, literally means fear. Fear to whom it is due. And I think this relates to the fear of God that we see all over Scripture. It's not just, that's why the Revised Standard Version translates it as respect. Who gets honor and who gets fear? 1 Peter 2.17 has this lovely sentence. It's the second half of, I love this, the second half of verse 17 in 1 Peter 2. Fear God, period. Honor the emperor, period. So see, even in this, yes, pay your taxes, Give to whom they are due, and give honor to whom it is due. But to whom is fear due? Who do we, again, biblical fear? Only to God. So even in this, even in this, um, show, you know, respect for authority. Be subject to authority. But remember to whom fear is due. Give honor to the emperor. Respect that God may be working through him. But don't forget who you really belong to. Give fear to whom fear is due and honor to whom honor is due. We are out of time. This is like what I do with socks. I swear, every time I take laundry out of the dryer... I find a match for a sock, and I find another missing sock. I perpetually have three socks that don't match. They're not my socks. They're Josh's socks. um, And so this is what we're doing with reading Romans. We get caught up, and then there's like a little bit left. 
but that's okay. It is, um, oh man, and this part that's coming up is so good. And unfortunately, fortunately for you maybe, unfortunately for me, I will not be here next week. I have to go to California. Bob Kuhn is going to be making a... Um, encore performance. <laughs> Bob Kuhn taught TBS for many years before he retired. And so Bob is going to be guiding you all next week through now Romans 13:11. I'm going to tell him I did this on purpose. I'm going to tell him I left the wake from sleep part for him. Through 14:12. All right. Thank you all for sticking with me through that, through the odd parts of chapter 13 and um, the catch-up on chapter 12. Enjoy your small groups. I will not see you next week, but Bob will be here. TBS will happen. I will see you the week after. Thank you.